0: Hello and welcome to our next episode of Clinical Conversations provided by the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Trainees and Members Committee. My name is Anna Blarga, and I am a TMC member. Today I am delighted to be joined by Dr Justin McKee, Consultant in Medical Ophthalmology at the Princess Alexandra Eye Pavilion in the NHS Lothian. Welcome Dr McKee and thank you very much for your time today.
1: Oh thanks for having me.
0: So medical ophthalmology is a rapidly growing medical specialty that focuses on the vascular, inherited, infectious and autoimmune disorders affecting vision and other neuro conditions. From important screening programs to investigation and management of chronic ophthalmic conditions and emergency cases, ophthalmology problems can be a primary or a secondary presentation of many acute and chronic illnesses. Today, we're going to discuss with Dr. McKee the most common systemic conditions that can present with eye involvement, and we are also going to find out about the work and the training of a medical ophthalmology specialist. So, before we start, Dr. McKee, I just wanted to ask you uh, to give us an overview of your um, daily work as a medical ophthalmologist.
1: Uh, Sure. So, I spend uh, most of my time doing outpatient clinics. So, I do three clinics a week in uveitis, So the bulk of that is treating autoimmune ocular inflammation um, with immunosuppressive treatment, but I'll also see some infectious disease that can cause ocular inflammation. So conditions like toxoplasmosis and syphilis and and TB. I do two neuro-ophthalmology clinics a week, uh, one of which is in the eye pavilion, but one of which is in the Department of Clinical Neurosciences, which is a nice change of scene. I also do a thyroid eye disease clinic every week, um, and that's alongside my endocrinology colleagues, Nicholas Amit and Anna Dover, uh, which is really kind of enjoyable multidisciplinary service to be involved in. Um, And I also do one diabetic retinopathy clinic a week. So yeah, it's mainly sort of outpatient clinics and then associated administration, you know, checking and investigations and so on.
0: That's quite a diverse weekly kind of job experience. And you mentioned quite a few of the systemic illnesses. So I guess I'll continue by asking you, what are the main chronic systemic illnesses that are associated with eye or vision problems that you encounter in your day to day practice?
1: Uh, Yes. So, well, I mean, diabetic eye disease is obviously a very common uh, problem that we see a lot of. And I think we'll talk about that in a bit more detail later on thyroid eye disease you know as i say i do that the thyroid eye clinic once a week it's relatively rare but it's very significant for the patients that have it so you know it's often young women who're coping with a change in their appearance um, alongside you know other symptoms that you can get from thyroid eye disease like double vision discomfort and occasionally you can have sight threatening manifestations like corneal exposure and dysthyroid optic neuropathy so it's important to have a service that can you know treat these patients appropriately I'll often see a lot of patients with HLA-B27 associated disease. So patients with ankylosing spondylitis and inflammatory bowel disease, psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. And these patients quite classically get an anterior uveitis and they can get it sort of recurrently and can have it quite severely. I'll quite often see patients with multiple sclerosis and the sort of multiple sclerosis mimic condition, uh, neuromyelitis ophthalmica, which can cause quite a devastating sort of optic neuropathy and transverse myelitis. So again, although it's quite rare, it's important to be aware of and to treat appropriately. We see patients with ocular myasthenia, but there's quite a lot of crossover between ocular and generalized myasthenia. Again, in ophthalmology, I'm not sure if it's quite a systemic condition, but we see a lot of patients with idiopathic intracranial hypertension, um, and even more so since lockdown, and a lot of people have, have gained weight over lockdown, and that's a condition that's associated with high body mass index. I see patients with rheumatoid arthritis, with sarcoids, tuberculosis. got a few patients with Bechet's disease, which is obviously quite rare, but can cause quite a devastating and severe uveitis. And we also see, you know, a few patients with um, ANCA-associated vasculitis, primarily granulomatous polyangitis. So these patients can get scleritis. They can also sometimes get orbital granulomas. And what we've actually done in Edinburgh, is set up a joint clinic with Dr. Bean Dawn, who's a a nephrologist who runs the vasculitis service in Lothian. And we do that about every six weeks. And it's just really about trying to join up care for patients with these rare diseases who often see, you know, multiple specialists. So, so yeah, we do see quite a lot of sort of systemic, you know, multi-system disease.
0: What what about hypertension? In medical school, and then for kind of postgraduate exams, we we learn about the manifestations of hypertensive eye disease. Do you see that, or is that less common now? With I guess the improvement in the management of hypertension,
1: I think that it's probably less common than it was. You know, before hypertension was so widely treated. Um, and what's interesting about hypertensive retinopathy is that you know. There can be a wee bit of a disconnect between patients with retinal manifestations of hypertension and quite how bad their blood pressure is. Some of the patients we've had with hypertensive retinopathy, you know, have had systolics that have been below 200, you know, things like 180, 190 that might not necessarily make you panic on a, a medical ward, but, you know, they can have not massively elevated blood pressures. Um, I mean, I think really the best way to diagnose hypertensive retinopathy is to check the blood pressure because diabetic retinopathy has quite varied manifestations. You know, you can get disc swelling, so all patients that present with papilledema should should get blood pressure checked. And associated with that, you can get a sort of neuroretinitis type picture where you get these sort of streaky linear exudates coming in from the disc, you know, towards the fovea. You can get things, you know, that we learn about in medical school, like AV nipping and silver wiring Mm -hmm. and flame hemorrhages and and cotton wool spots. We had a patient recently, you can get these rarer manifestations like choroidal infarcts. So the choroid is the layer of blood vessels between the sclera and the retina, uh, you know, in hypertension, because, uh, you know, the sort of circulation dynamics there, they can become, you can get ischemia on the choroid. And you get these really sort of characteristic triangular wedge infarcts at the back of the eye. So, as I say, there's a number of sort of different manifestations of hypertensive retinopathy. And it's it's just important for us in the eye clinic to remember to check the blood pressure. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. And um, so, so you said a bit about diabetic retinopathy. I guess this is uh, one of the leading causes of loss of vision worldwide and a common diabetes complication. The screening programs that we have undoubtedly played an important role in the monitoring management of these patients. In your practice, um, can you give us an overview of the evolution of the national screening programmes? And are they different in type 1 and type 2 diabetes patients? Uh,
1: In Scotland, we have a national screening programme. I think in the rest of the UK, you know, it's it's run on a more local level. But we have a national screening programme in in Scotland, and then it's sort of run by the different um, NHS boards. There's no difference really between screening for type 1 and type 2 diabetic. Every diabetic patient over the age of 12 is currently invited to annual screening. That involves a retinal photograph, which is done with or without uh, you know, dilating drops with tropicamide, And we deliver it as locally as possible. So we've got like mobile cameras that go out to health centers and things like that. So the images are then graded and there's three levels of grading. So level one grading is whether things are normal or not normal. And actually, in Scotland, for about the last 10 years, we've used um, image analysis software, so an auto grader, to analyze level one grading. It's continually quality assured and is shown to be quite a safe way of doing level one grading. After level one grading, if there are abnormalities, it will go to a level two grader, who's often a nurse or a medical photographer or anyone who's been appropriately trained to level two grading. And if the image has moderate or non-severe, non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, then the level two grader will decide whether they'll come in for a six-month recall or go back to a 12-month recall. But if they think that there's severe non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, so that could be features like um, venous beading or, you know, a lot of blood hemorrhages in the retina, then, and they think that that they've got referable, you know, retinopathy, or if there are, new blood vessels, so proliferative retinopathy, which is also, you know, obviously referable, then the image goes to a level three grader, who's usually an ophthalmologist, and they'll get referred on to the eye clinic. Um, or if they have proliferative retinopathy, they'll go straight into the the laser clinic. I think in terms of evolution and developments of screening, so you know automated grading was, you know, quite a big development. And I think we're a bit ahead of the game um, in Scotland in terms of having implemented that. The other evolution that's happening at the moment is that you know it's been quite uh, well proven that if somebody's had two annual screening episodes with no retinopathy, they can be considered at low risk for retinopathy. So their screening is being extended to two yearly instead of annual recall. And the other aspect of diabetic eye disease that we screen for is diabetic maculopathy. Um, and that's when, because of prolonged hyperglycemia, you get damage to the capillary walls in the retina and you get leakage of fluid. So, you, And if that edema is involving the fovea um, at the centre of the macula, patients can get blurring of vision. So diabetic macular edema is a sort of three-dimensional feature. So on a photograph, you can only really look for clues. So for example, you could look for hard exudates and that can be a sign that there might be macular edema. In the past, all these patients were referred into the eye clinic to be reviewed at a slit lamp by an ophthalmologist to see if there was macular edema or not. But actually, what we're now using in screening for these patients is optical coherence tomography, or OCT, which I think might also be used in cardiology, I'm not sure. And uh, (laughs) so, yeah, so basically it's it's an infrared beam that's used in a sort of analogous way to ultrasound, and it gives us this cross-sectional view of the retina. And using that, we can very confidently exclude or identify macular edema. And actually, that means that about 70 to 85% of these patients who were previously going to the eye clinic from retinal screening because of maculopathy can just stay in screening. Mm. And, you know, that means that we can be much more efficient about who is coming from screening into the eye clinic and that the patients that need treatment, you know, can get it in a more, you know, efficient manner, basically. Um, And it, you know, stops patients having unnecessary trips up to the eye clinic, which, I don't know if you've ever been, but sometimes they can have quite a long wait in the waiting room, unfortunately. So I think they prefer not to go if they don't have to, you know. Mm -hmm.
0: And just leading on to that, so changes in the screening program, what about the management? I mean, there's been some changes in the management of both type 1 and, and monitoring of type 1 and type 2 diabetes over the last decade. Have you noticed any changes in the prevalence of presentation of diabetic retinopathy and also what about the changes in the management of diabetic proliferative retinopathy?
1: Yeah so I mean one of the changes that's happened with diabetic management is patients going on to things like continuous glucose monitoring and insulin pumps and one of our concerns when patients start going on to continuous glucose monitoring is that you know we know from the very large diabetes control of complications trial in the early 90s that rapid tightening of glycemic control was associated with an early worsening of diabetic retinopathy before the long-term benefits of good control accrue. So we're always a bit concerned when patients very rapidly tighten their Mm. glycemic control. Um, However, that's been looked at actually here in Edinburgh by Fraser Gibbs' team in the Diabetes and Endocrinology Department, and they've actually published on this. And it's shown that with continuous glucose monitoring, reduction in A1C was not associated with worsening of retinopathy or associated with an increased risk of laser. Um, so, you know, that was sort of reassuring from, from our point of view. And I think also it's quite a difficult message for patients. You know, you're these are often patients that have struggled with their glycemic control over the years. And then you're saying to them, you know, lower your blood glucose, but don't lower it too much. It can just be a little bit difficult to communicate that. Similarly, with, with insulin pumps, the, the same group have actually shown that in patients who are not under ophthalmology care for retinopathy, who go on to insulin pumps, there's no increase in retinopathy. Um, but I know that the team in, in diabetes, when they start patients on insulin pumps, if they are known to have retinopathy, they will set slightly higher blood glucose you know, targets just in order to avoid that rapid tightening. In type two diabetes, there's obviously a number of sort of agents that have been introduced in the last sort of decade or so to, you know, to improve glycemic control. Synaglutide is one that has been associated, you know, when it's combined with insulin, in fact, with an increase in, in retinopathy and need for laser treatment. So that's one that that I think the diabetic team um, in patients with the retinopathy, they tend to avoid that combination of synaglutide and, and insulin. And the mechanism of that is not clear. But again, it's thought to be potentially due to this you know, rapid tightening of glycemic control. I think in terms of the treatment of retinopathy and, and maculopathy, there was a big change about 10 years or so ago with the introduction of injections of antivascular endothelial growth factor, anti-VEGF, intravitreal, so intraocular mm-hmm. injections for, for diabetic macular edema. VEGF is kind of one of the main cytokines that the ischemic retina releases in diabetic retinopathy. And if you can blockade this, you know, it's it's very effective in reducing diabetic macular edema and and improving vision. These are the same injections that people might have heard of in age-related macular degeneration. And they're delivered by nurse nurse injectors um, here at the Eye Pavilion who do a really good job. Prior to this, all, all we had for diabetic macular edema was focal macular laser. And the aim of that was to maintain vision, but it didn't actually improve vision. Um, and the other thing is that we were lasering quite near you know, the center of vision, so patients could develop you know, scotomas and so on as a result of that. So moving on to, to anti-VEGF treatment has improved the care of diabetic macular edema. And in fact, for patients who don't respond to anti-VEGF injections, we can actually give steroid implants, which in addition to blocking VEGF, block a number of cytokines and and can sometimes, you know, help in patients who've been resistant to anti-VEGF injections. For proliferative retinopathy, the mainstay of treatment is, you know, remains laser panretinal photocoagulation. So in focal laser, I said we were lasering near the center of the eye, but in panretinal photocoagulation, it's the peripheral retina that we laser. We don't really know why it works, but I think of it in terms of, you know, it's ablating the ischemic peripheral retina. And then that reduces sort of cytokine release and and the drive for for new blood vessels to grow. You know, it is a good treatment um, and it's an effective treatment, but it's an ablative treatment. So patients can develop problems with peripheral vision. So, for example, if a patient's had both eyes lasered, they need to inform the DVLA. And there is a risk that you could lose peripheral vision to the extent that you lose your driving license, you know. We also use our peripheral vision quite a lot at night because that's where our sort of light sensitive rods are in the retina. And patients that have had laser will often report, you know, worsening night vision. It's a bit complicated because patients with diabetic retinopathy, with prol- proliferative retinopathy, they have an ischemic peripheral retina anyway. So they have, you know, even without laser, they will have peripheral field defects. But I think, you know, laser does does worsen field defects. Awesome. But actually, now there's been a number of trials looking at the same injections I mentioned, anti-VEGF injections, for treating proliferative retinopathy. And that's shown to be equivalent to panretinal folic one big trial in America, and in fact, superior to it in a UK trial that was done. Um, The issue is that if you're injecting for proliferative retinopathy, once you stop injecting, within sort of up to 16 weeks, the proliferation will return because you've still got an ischemic retina. So in terms of implementing that in the NHS, you know, it can often be difficult for in the long term for diabetic patients can, can struggle to attend, you know, they've also got multiple hospital appointments. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's a lack of continuation of that treatment, a patient could run into, into problems. Whereas with laser, once laser has been completed, that tends to have to lead to essentially lasting resolution of the proliferative retinopathy. You know, I think that's probably coming soon for proliferative retinopathy injection treatment, but it's not yet implemented in the NHS. And there are, you know, quite a few sort of considerations with it. But yeah, I think those are the main sort of changes that we've seen to to diabetic retinopathy.
0: Thank you very much. That's a very good overview. Now, we discussed quite a lot about, you know, chronic conditions, and I'd like to ask you a few questions about more of a kind of an acute presentation. Do you see patients in the emergency department or medical admission units? And what are the main emergency presenting complaints you encounter in ophthalmology?
1: Yes, so, I mean, if at all possible, we try to get patients to come to us um, in in the eye department. And that's honestly not just because we're being lazy. It's because we can really assess them much better, you know, if we see them at, at, at the slit lamp and so on. But sometimes that's just not possible. So, for example, the trainees are quite often not quite often, but occasionally have to go, for example, to intensive care. If a patient's been identified to have a candidemia sepsis, they quite often will ask us to come and have a look at the retina just to see if there is evidence of a sort of candidal endophthalmitis or these kind of things. And For my part, my main dealings with medical inpatients are when I do my clinic at the Department of Clinical Neurology. So I'll often be asked to see neurology and uh, neurosurgical inpatients um, and that will often be things like patients who are thought to have raised intracranial pressure, visual field defects or optic nerve compression from a pituitary or a cellar or a skull base mass or patients with double vision and nystagmus. These are the sorts of you know th- things that I'm asked to see and I'll often be asked to advise or take over quite early on on patients who come to our acute referral clinic um, in the eye department Uh, who have, for example, a very severe uveitis that's causing a lot of pain or visual loss or, you know, or an atypical optic neuropathy. I think in terms of emergency presentations, one that, you know, there's quite a lot of crossover between medicine and ophthalmology is, uh, you know, giant cell arteritis, uh, which is, you know, quite an important condition to identify. You know, usually if an ophthalmologist is involved in a patient with a giant cell arteritis, things are already uh, quite severe, and the concern really is, you know, if, for example, a patient's lost vision in one eye from an arteritic anterior optic neuropathy, which is the main mechanism, you know, whereby giant cell arteritis can cause vision loss. If it's happened in one eye, it could very quickly happen in the other eye. So it's really important to identify if a patient has giant cell arteritis. The, the kind of blindness that you get from giant cell arteritis is unfortunately a very profound disabling blindness. So it's something we're desperate to avoid. Unfortunately, the more giant cell arteritis that I've seen over the years, the more I've come to appreciate that occasionally, not all patients present with, you know, dramatically raised inflammatory markers or very classical symptoms of jaw claudication and so on. So we really need to have a high index of suspicion. But on the other hand, these are often elderly patients who get very high doses of steroid for a long period of time. And that definitely has an associated, you know, significant morbidity. And that's something that I'm also very keen to avoid. So temporal artery ultrasound has actually been a really helpful development in that because we get a very quick turnaround from the ultrasound. And if it's positive, you know, with a halo sign and the patient has a fitting clinical Mm -hmm. picture, then I would very rarely ask for a biopsy in that situation because even if the biopsy is negative, you know, you could say it was a skip lesion and so on. You know that's been a big help, and a, a negative ultrasound is also can also be very helpful, particularly in these sort of equivocal cases where you're just you know wanting to just rule out giant cell arthritis basically. And I think another good development in giant cell arthritis has been having a proven steroid sparing medication in the form of tocilizumab, and that's really helped to manage these patients and reduce steroid related morbidity, particularly if patients have you know recurrence of giant cell arthritis after their steroids have been weaned. The other urgent things that I would encounter are things like you know severe idiopathic intracranial hypertension or or papilledema really of any cause and remembering to do the blood pressure Um, yeah and things like sight-threatening compressive lesions in the skull base third nerve palsies I think are quite an urgent thing to investigate you know to rule out uh, a PCOM aneurysm Mm -hmm. Um, and then you know we'll also you know urgent things I'd be involved in would be like as I say very severe uveitis cases that can be very vision-threatening and require urgent treatment.
0: If you can give us a kind of a brief summary of what would be your approach to assessing someone who comes in with kind of an acute um, monocular visual loss or threatened vision.
1: So, yeah, with monocular visual loss, I mean, I think really you want to know a little bit more about the presentation. So you'd want to know about the duration of the visual loss. So is it very sudden onset, like within seconds? And then you'd maybe be thinking, along the lines of a, of a central retinal artery occlusion. Mm-hmm. If it's gradually over hours or days, you might be thinking more of things like a central retinal vein occlusion or an anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, which, as I've said, can be arteritic in giant cell arteritis, but you can also get non-arteritic forms, which are unfortunately, again, poorly understood, but tend to happen in, in vascular paths of so people mm-hmm. with hypertension, people with increasing age. As I've said before, it's always important to think of giant cell arteritis. You know, age, inflammatory markers, and then symptoms. And I, I would say, kind of in that order. You know, so if somebody has mm-hmm. no symptoms but they have raised inflammatory markers, um, you still want to really rule out giant cell arteritis unless there's another obvious cause for those raised inflammatory markers. You might think of optic neuritis. So that tends to be in younger patients. Classically, these patients will get pain on eye movement. Uh, that often precedes the visual loss by a few days. And the loss of vision can present acutely, but actually, you know, the patient will report has gradually come on over a couple of weeks. It usually sort of gradually worsens over about two weeks in optic neuritis. So for retinal detachment, often patients will report like a shadow or a curtain coming in from the periphery of their vision. And again, in the history, there might be clues this is somebody at risk of a retinal detachment. So are they a high myope or have they recently had cataract surgery, which can be a precipitant for retinal detachment. I'd want to know if there was pain or photophobia and if they were a contact lens wearer. So I might be thinking of like a bacterial keratitis if that was the case. But I think most patients who present with persistent monocular visual loss, you know, should be going pretty soon from the medical assessment unit to the on-call ophthalmologist or the acute referral clinic in ophthalmology. You know, it might be in medicine, that you'd more commonly see things like, um, you know, transient unilateral visual loss. Mm-hmm. And of course, in that situation, you'd be thinking of amaurosis fugax and, and those patients should be worked up by the stroke team. But again, amaurosis fugax can be a presentation of giant cell arteritis. So it's important to satisfy yourself the patient doesn't have giant cell arteritis. And actually what we see quite a lot is that it's important to pin down with the patient whether it actually was in one eye or was it an homonymous phenomenon that was in one half of the visual field and the patient identified it as a monocular phenomenon? So I'm quite frequently going over, you know, histories with patients and, and asking them, you know, did you close one eye at a time? And sometimes they can be a little bit unsure about that. And you can start to uh, figure out that actually it was a homonymous defect that they'd they'd noticed. And a common thing that would cause that would be a or aura. People commonly describe this sort of scintillating ring or kaleidoscope type visual phenomenon that starts in a small area of the visual field and then gradually, you know, enlarges over the course of about 30 minutes. Um, and it shouldn't last, you know, for longer than an hour. And you can get, you know, aura without headache. And as a general rule of thumb, you know, sort of migranous visual phenomenon will give you a positive scotoma. So you might see like a bright light or a kaleidoscopy type uh, thing. Uh, whereas a vascular occlusion will give you a negative phenomenon. So patients will report a blackness in their vision. So for amaurosis, they classically report a kind of black curtain coming down over their vision or a black transient visual impairment in, in one eye. So I think those are the main sort of conditions I would think about, the main approach I would take for a patient with monocular visual loss. Yeah,
0: Thank you very much. That's very, very helpful. Before the end of today's podcast... I wanted to ask you some questions about the the training for medical ophthalmology and uh, what training routes can you take for a career in medical ophthalmology?
1: Yeah, so trainees can can come into s t three in medical ophthalmology either from s t two in um, internal medicine training, in which case they'll then spend the first two years of medical ophthalmology training, so years three and s t three and four mostly in general ophthalmology training. Um, and they'll do their part one frc op, or trainees can come from ST2 in ophthalmology specialist training, in which case they'll uh, essentially follow IMT training for two years and complete their MRCP. Um, I'd really sort of like to advertise the fact that we'll have two jobs in Scotland starting next year in August 2022, so they'll be in the recruitment for that, for that round of jobs. Um, one job in Glasgow and one in Edinburgh, so we'd really welcome, you know, any potential applicants to, to get in touch.
0: Yeah. And so which route is more common, the internal medicine route or the ophthalmology special training?
1: Most years I'll, I'll be on the interview panel for medical ophthalmology and it is actually pretty much, you know, a kind of 50-50 uh, split. I mean, one of the concepts that we talk about in medical ophthalmology is being bilingual in that you understand the world of both medicine and ophthalmology. My own experience was that I came from what was then core medical training into ophthalmology, having heard a bit about the specialty and just been interested to do it. You know, the eye clinic is quite a different world and there's a lot to learn, but it's very uh, rewarding. But I think having that um, holistic and sort of systematic approach that we learn in medicine, you know, is really valuable in applying to medical conditions that, you know, that affect vision. But really, by the end of ST4, trainees from both routes um, are on the same footing, you know, and have had you know the same experience, but just in, in different order. And the other important thing to point out is that, you know, the sort of medical aspect of training doesn't finish in ST4. So in sort of higher specialist training, ST5, 6 and 7, medical ophthalmology trainees will continue to have attachments in relevant medical specialties. So rheumatology, neurology, infectious disease, sexual health, nephrology, and so on, you know, diabetes and endocrinology, alongside, you know, going to sort of subspecialist ophthalmology clinics in uveitis and neuroophthalmology. So our experience is that by the time a trainee comes to their CCT, and unfortunately in the UK at the moment, there's only about one or two trainees a year that are CCTing in medical ophthalmology. They're generally, you know, essentially headhunted by departments to to come and work because you know there's an increasing increasing workload and um, the increasing complexity of some of the treatments we're dealing with particularly in immunosuppression you know there's quite a lot of value in having a, a physician you know dealing with that and the other thing is that actually medical ophthalmology you know as ophthalmologists we're actually quite versatile so being able to work in to go from diabetic retinopathy to neuro-ophthalmology actually in the world of ophthalmology that's quite a you know a stretch between subspecialties so that kind of versatility is also quite valuable so it's really a specialty where you see the most interesting patients in the hospital and i think it's you know a really great career so i'd encourage people to think about about joining us
0: thank you yes you did describe quite a lot of interesting interdisciplinary work Thank you very much for your time and for all these very helpful insights on the common ocular manifestations of systemic illnesses and for your overview of her career in medical ophthalmology. Thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Oh, thanks a lot.